Uh, please uh, let me pray one more time as we begin our, our message today. Now, Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us the truth of your word in a way that would um, make an impact on the way we live. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide me and my thoughts, that you would help us, Lord, to uh, digest the truth of your word in a way that would uh, impact um, our heart. I pray, Lord, that we would... um, receive the word of God, that it would take root and grow and produce much fruit. Please protect us from anything that is not from you, but that which is from you, use it for your honor and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian faith is often described as a relationship with God a relationship with Jesus. It's not a life of keeping this rule or that process. It's a time of interacting with God. And so we enjoy a relationship with God. The Lord's Prayer opens up our Father, implying that we have a wonderful opportunity to relate with God as our Father. In John chapter 15, Jesus calls us his friends. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord Jesus calls us friends. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He guides us. He empowers us. And he lives through us. And so we have a new identity. We are in Christ. And no longer are we under the law, but we are now under grace. And so guilt and shame are no longer those things which can consume us, but we enjoy a freedom as we have a relationship by faith with God. Now, while all this is true, all this is gloriously true, I am one who constantly needs to remind myself that I must go deeper than these truths. Because my relationship is not with God My relationship is with God. You know what I mean? Uh, It's easy to lose sight of what it means to have a relationship with God. And I don't think I can really convey what that means in one Sunday sermon. Yet this morning I will unpack a passage of scripture that at least introduces us and I think goes quite a ways in helping us understand what it means to have a relationship with God. And I trust that as my comments are given, that maybe you will be influenced to come back to this text on your own and really really just muse over them. Uh, allow them to speak to you and try to get the thrust of what this text is saying because I'm going to introduce our series of messages on to the seven churches with an introductory message on verses one, uh, nine, verses nine to twenty of Revelation chapter one. And so, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the last book of the Bible, chapter one. And I'd like to discuss with us our relationship with God. Now, let me introduce verses 9 to 20 with a short 
introduction of the entire book. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, Jesus, or 1 to 11, um, we have an introduction to the author. And the author of Revelation is John the Apostle. He's exiled on Patmos. Um, it's an island, but it's not Alcatraz. Um, it's an island where there are towns, where there's commerce, and uh, it's true that he can't leave the island. It's kind of a place for banishment in the Roman Empire, but there's a certain amount of freedom for him. And so he probably gets to come and go from the place that he lives. He has social life, and he's able to worship the Lord, possibly with other believers, but he is still confined to the island of Patmos. Now, the recipients of the book of Revelation are specifically listed as seven churches in Asia Minor. And that's found in verse 4 and verse 11 of chapter 1. Uh, we know that this, the, the immediate recipients of this letter is to these churches. So I prepared a little map for you so that you might be able to see where these churches are located. Now that map is a map of modern-day Turkey. And uh, you can see Patmos over on the left-hand side. And then we've got the seven churches that are there, uh, beginning with Ephesus. And there would be a natural mail route to go north to Smyrna and the other ones and then down to Laodicea. And that would probably be the route that the, the courier who would take uh, this message from Jesus to these churches. But I want to suggest to you that because we are in the book of Revelation, and Revelation is what we would call an apocalyptic book, that there are symbolic significances to numbers. And the number seven in the book of Revelation is the number of completeness. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus said, send this letter, send this work, this revelation to the seven churches in uh, the south. I think it's quite possible for us and appropriate for us to say these letters are also intended for all local churches. And so I would suggest to you that even though it was a specific message to these specific congregations, I would suggest that his message can be also adapted to every local congregation. John's call in verses 10 to 11 is very interesting. Vaughn's call, he says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, the trumpet sound is a very um, pointed way of saying that it's a clear voice. It's a clear vision. Uh, Jesus is saying to, to John, uh, make no mistake about what I'm saying. I want you to write down everything that I'm going to say. And remember, this is not just a message of Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches. He wants the seven churches to get the whole message of the entire book of Revelation. So everything that happens with the seals and the bowls and the trumpets and the horses and all the kind of thing that is given to us in the apocalyptic book of Revelation, John wants these seven churches and all churches to have this message. It refers to all of what we see. And so, therefore, I want to discuss and to make a suggestion on the purpose of this book. Um, John's, uh, Jesus' purpose is not just to talk to these seven churches, 
He wants to give us a prophetic message to all of Christendom. Uh, the nature of the book of Revelation is a genre called apocalyptic with visions and symbolism that deals with conflicts and wars and suffering and the cosmic battle between good and evil. God was speaking to the Christian churches that are either in the midst of or are about to enter into a time of struggle and difficulty. And of course, we know from history that that struggle and difficulty continues. And so notice how he outlines for us the purpose of the book of Revelation. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. In these verses, we have the context of all of the visions and, and uh, symbolism of the book of Revelation. John, or Jesus start, or John's Jesus starts out and he says, there's going to be suffering. In fact, I'm suffering now. And Jesus told us in John chapter 16, verse 36, 33, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. So suffering is the context of the book of Revelation. But he doesn't just say that there's only going to be suffering. Then he says, then there's kingdom. He says this suffering will continue until the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Now we know that wherever Jesus is, there is his kingdom. And so when Jesus came on this earth, he established his kingdom. But there is a not yet part of the kingdom as well. And the book of Revelation tells us that even though that they're suffering now, he wants his churches to know that there will be a time when Jesus will return and he will reign in a millennial kingdom on earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But until then, John, John tells us that we must have patient endurance in Jesus. Patient endurance in Jesus. And we know too that John, or that Jesus completes his statement in John 16 that even though there is tribulation in the world, you know what? Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16.33 I have overcome the world. You see, that's the message of Revelation. The message of Revelation is, is that there will be suffering. We can look forward to a kingdom where the king will rule. In the meantime, we need to have patient endurance in Jesus. See, it's my contention that prophecy is given to us. Even though it speaks of future events, I would suggest to you that its primary purpose is ethics. It's fun to be able to know what's going to happen and make some timelines and talk about, you know, this, this kingdom and this kingdom and this battle and all these things historically going to happen. It's fun to do that. But I think a more important thing for us to understand with prophetic literature is prophecy is always given in order to influence our behavior. It's always given that way. Old Testament prophets would speak to kings in order to influence the behavior of the nation. 
prophets in the New Testament would speak to the churches, always in order to influence their behavior. So I would suggest to you that this book of Revelation is given to us to influence our behavior, ethics. And as Jesus reveals this vision to John, I hope it's going to affect the way we live. I hope it's going to impact our Monday morning. I hope it's going to impact the way we raise our families, the way we do our job, the way we interact with our neighbors, and the way we do church. You see, it's not only a message to the world, it's a message to the local church. And so Jesus gets specific and he says, I'm going to give a message to seven local churches, even though they may represent uh, issues that every church faces, as always happens in the New Testament, at least God's message is given to us in a historical context. We have a historical faith. We don't have some faith that someone just dreamed up. We have a faith that's based on actual events in history. And so when God gives us a message, he does it through a practical application from events in history. And so John outlines events in seven local churches, and he tells us, I want you to learn from this message. So what I'd like to do this morning is give an introduction to the message that these seven churches are going to have, a general message. And then beginning next Sunday, we'll talk about specific messages. So what is the general message to these seven churches? What is the specific ethical issue that we are going to be confronted with in these seven churches? I would suggest to you that we need to evaluate our relationship with God. Is our relationship with God with God? Or is our relationship with God (laughs) with God? And I think if we can understand that and put the context of the messages to the seven churches in the context of relationship with God, it will have the greatest impact on the way we live. So I would suggest three considerations in our relationship with God. And it begins, first of all, in verses 9 to 11, that the message to these churches is remain faithful in promoting Jesus' gospel. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in this spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now we already discussed the context of kingdom of suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. But now I want to talk about why this suffering came, why is it necessary for us to look forward to the kingdom, and why do we need to patiently endure in Jesus? John makes it very clear for us. 
It's because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. John was relegated to the island of Patmos because he was preaching the word. And he was relegated to Patmos because he was giving testimony of Jesus. He was giving his testimony of how Jesus changed his life and how Jesus could change other people's life. His present difficulty and those of the seven churches, as well as our difficulties right now, if we're truly having a relationship with God, will stem from our commitment to the Word of God and our practice of testimony and witnessing about Jesus. You see, when a person has a relationship that is important, we're open about it, aren't we? How many of you are on Facebook? Do you have have Facebook accounts? Yeah. What do you see predominantly on Facebook? Pictures of people that are important to the people who put their pictures on Facebook. I mean, we've got pictures of our new baby, our grandbaby, pictures of our wedding, pictures of, you know, I just got engaged, pictures of time when we got together for Thanksgiving, all these kind. We're proud of our relationships. Likewise, believers who are committed to the gospel and who have a relationship with God are excited about their relationship with God and relationship with Jesus' gospel. But here's why our relationship with God goes deeper than just saying, well, he is my friend and God is my father. The reason our relationship with God goes deeper is because if we are truly having a relationship with God, it will cost. It'll cost us. There'll be a price to pay. And if there's a price to pay, It requires us to be able to handle suffering. We'll need to look forward to that kingdom. And we'll need to have patience and endurance in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds us that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. That means that when the Jews heard the gospel, it made them angry made them angry because they couldn't wrap their minds around a suffering, crucified Messiah. But that's what the Old Testament taught. And so when the Jews heard the word of God, and when they heard Christians witnessing about Jesus, they pushed back. And it caused suffering. When the Jews heard people testimony and witness about Jesus Christ, they pushed back and it caused suffering. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 also tells us that uh, the gospel is not only a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's foolishness to secular mankind. The secular people look at Christians and they say, those Christians, they're out to lunch. Those guys, they don't know anything. They're not relevant to life. Uh, Just ignore them. And so they push back by telling us, silence, stop this foolishness. Don't go on talking about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. So what the secular world does to us in our days is they try to silence us from public discourse because of the word of God and because of witnessing for Jesus. So in his messages to the seven churches, Jesus will confront them. And I believe that he is confronting us today by saying, 
are you committed to promoting Jesus' gospel even though there's a price to pay? Some of these churches in Revelation, the, the seven churches, um, were weary about their relationship with God. They, they, might have, they might have gotten tired in the battle. There could be a hunger to be accepted by those around them. So they stopped talking about the word of God. They stopped witnessing for Jesus because they wanted people to accept them. They wanted to fit in. They wanted people to uh, love them and welcome them into their circles. And they couldn't do that if they were committed to the word of God and witnessing about Jesus. So maybe they just, maybe they just got a little bit lukewarm about the gospel. Could be that they were self-centered. Could be that they were pursuing things under the sun. Nurturing their career, wanting to amass materialism, wanting to find power and influence in the world and be a big star in the world. It could be that they did that. And Jesus had to say, no, wait a minute. You're not, you're not promoting the gospel. You're not talking about the word of God. You're not witnessing to Jesus. And so, and so the message to the seven churches was, Boy, it's important for you to be faithful in promoting Jesus' gospel. I think that's a message that we need to consider for us as well. But there's a second general theme in these letters to the seven churches that I think we can learn from. And I think as we do, I think we need to learn to respect the passion of Jesus for his church. Now, I've been thinking about this phrase a lot this week. Um, I'd like to change a word in it. I'd like to change it to respect the authority of Jesus over his church. So could you make that change in your notes? Respect the authority of Jesus over his church. Look at verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, In his right hand held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Jesus is shown here as being in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Verse 20 identifies these lampstands as the churches. And so Jesus stands in the midst of the churches. He is particularly interested in each individual church. He's in their midst. Being in these local assemblies means that he's much more than an absentee landlord. He's a landlord that actually lives where the people live. He has a personal relationship with these assemblies. He's in the midst of everything that local church does and says. And so when we examine the message of the seven churches, they are specific 
historical messages that are to be interpreted as such. But Jesus had a personal relationship with each one of them. Each one was a different church. And Jesus had a personal relationship with that individual church, just like he has a personal relationship with us. And as he stands in the midst of us, he has authority over us. A word about the seven stars, verse 20, is much debate. The Bible says that Jesus holds these seven stars. I think that's the one thing we can be certain of, is that no matter how we interpret these seven stars, Jesus holds them. That means he has them in his grip. He is in control of these seven stars. The Bible says that they are angels, verse 20. The seven stars are angels. That's plausible. I mean, that's what the text says. They're angels. Um, one, of the, one of the issues with that interpretation is, why would Jesus give a message to an angel and not to the church? Other people would suggest that this is talking about the elders and the leaders of the church. And that's plausible too. But it's also understanding that it's all the people of the church that needs to understand this. One idea that is really very warm to me is that these seven stars represent the prevailing spirit of the church. Jesus is speaking to the prevailing attitude, their prevailing personality, their prevailing tendencies, their prevailing um, way that this church is living. And I think, I think there's a lot to be said for that view. But whatever view you take of these, what these seven stars are, Jesus holds them. Jesus has authority over them. Now I want you to look at something here. Because I want you to see, who is this Jesus who has authority over these churches? Is he Jesus? Or is he Jesus? Look at the portrait. One like a son of man, verse 13. Now this figure comes directly out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is who, Jesus, who John saw. Now, remember, this is Daniel. Daniel has been given a vision. And uh, this is how Daniel says that his vision is. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. So what Daniel saw is the same as what John saw. What did Daniel see? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His domain is an everlasting domain that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John saw the same Vision as Daniel saw. John saw one like a son of man. That's how Daniel described one like a son of man. 
Here's how John saw one like a son of man. Back to Revelation chapter 1. He saw a man who was dignified and set apart with a robe and golden sash. Sounds like the high priest to me. That's a pretty influential person. He saw one with white hair, the Bible says. Speaking of wisdom, all-knowing. He saw one who was eyes of fire, which meant that he was perceptive in discernment, in judgment. He saw one who had feet of bronze, which speaks of um, the the omnipotent power and the, the strength of this one. He saw one who had a voice that was that was loud and powerful like Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you know that when you get close to it, there's the roar of the rushing water that comes over the cliff. That's the voice of the one that John saw. Complete control, holding the seven stars in his hand. And by the way, again, the symbol is he holds all churches in his hand. A sword coming out of his mouth. That means that he's actually involved in judging. The word of God is like a two-edged sword, sharply dividing all these things in our lives. And then he's glorious. His face like the brilliance of the sun. And if you look directly at the sun, it's, it's way too glorious to do that. See, this is, this is the one that John saw. Is he Jesus? Or is he <laughs> Jesus? When I was little growing up, um, my parents um, built a house in a neighborhood that was a new development. And so we were one of the first homes that was built in the neighborhood. So there were always homes being built around us. And being a mischievous little boy, in the wintertime I loved to take snowballs. And um, my friends and I would throw snowballs at the house next door, Mr. Lux. We didn't like Mr. Lux because he was always yelling at us. And so we would throw snowballs at him, his house. He called the cops on me. Seven or eight year old boy calling the cops on me. And when that policeman came to my front door and said, I want to speak with Scotty. Scotty ran to the kitchen underneath the kitchen table, pulled the tablecloth down, and I was wrapped around the leg of that. I mean, I I wasn't moving. I wasn't coming out because this policeman was there. <laughs> and he came in and very humbly lifted up the tablecloth and says, Scott, you're not going to throw snowballs in Mr. Lux's house anymore, are you? <laughs> you see, this policeman was a policeman. You know what verse 17 says? When John turned and saw Jesus, he fell at his feet like a dead person. That's the Jesus of the church. That's the Jesus who has authority over the local church. 
I would suggest in our lives as we think about Jesus and how he has holding the church in his hand and how he lives amidst the church, not as an absentee landlord, but as a landlord who lives among us, that we are very thoughtful in the way we behave in the local church. That we are very thoughtful in the demands that we make on Jesus' church. And that we are very faithful, we're very thoughtful on the way we pray or don't pray for the local church. See, I grew up in the 60s. And there was a rock band that had a song, Jesus is just all right with me. I mean, some of you might know that. Is that true? Is Jesus just all right? We fall at his feet like a dead person when we see Jesus. That's our landlord. That's the one who speaks to us. That's the one who holds us in his hand, his authority over us has been lost to many of these seven churches. Let's be, let's be aware of what is this relationship all about? You know, I would suggest to you that the more grandeur our relationship with God is, the more God is God, and the more Jesus is Jesus, the more powerful the impact will be the next way that John saw Jesus. And that is found for us in verses 17 to 20. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Wow. That helps me to rest in the hope of Jesus' promises. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do not be afraid. Wow. Jesus put his right hand on John. Do not be afraid beloved disciple. Do not be afraid. It's a common message that's dozens and dozens and dozens of times when God reveals himself to his people and they have the right perspective of who this person is and they fall at his feet as dead people and he reaches down and says, do not be afraid. Three reasons why we ought not to be afraid. First, God is eternal. He's the first and the last. Jesus says, I hold the whole world in my hand. I hold you in my hand. And I will keep you in my hand for how long? (laughs) Forever. Wow. What a hope. John Piper writes, 
There is eternal, unshakable refuge in the everlasting glory of God, no matter what happens on earth. Is there anything more freeing, more thrilling, more strengthening that the truth that God Almighty is your refuge all day, every day, in all the ordinary and extraordinary experiences of life? Is there anything more wonderful than to know that Jesus holds our hand and that he is the first and the last? Secondly, Jesus says, be not afraid because I am the risen one. I have overcome and I gave you life. And because I'm living and give my life to you, I will live my life in you and through you. I'm alive. I'm risen. Wow. Do not be afraid. And third, I hold the keys to death in Hades. You know, Jesus may have given Peter the keys to the church which I think means the privilege to be the one to preach the sermon at Pentecost and to preach the sermon to the Gentiles at the home of Cornelius. The keys to death in Hades, Jesus isn't going to give them to anybody. They're his. And if you trust Jesus by faith, do you know what? The door to death in Hades will remain locked and bolted. And you can walk right by him. Because of who this Jesus is. Do not be afraid. And so what I think is the message of the book of Revelation is this. When Jesus speaks, we are wise to listen. When Jesus speaks, we are wise to listen. Jesus, who embodies all that this vision revealed, has some important things to say to each of these seven churches. And every message speaks of the priority of promoting the gospel, speaks to honoring the authority of Jesus over his church, and every message brings hope in the midst of difficulty. And when Jesus speaks to these churches, brothers and sisters, let's listen. Let's hear what he has to say. So what is your relationship with Jesus now? Is it Jesus? Or is it Jesus? Is your relationship with God, God? Or is it God? And as God reveals himself to us in his churches, let's ask this question. If he were to write a letter to us, what would he say? I don't really know what he would say. It would be interesting for us to discuss that. Perhaps we'll be challenged with these letters to these seven churches. We begin next week. I hope we'll listen. Thank you, Lord, that you put your hand on us and said, do not be afraid. You live among us. You have authority over us. And we know, Lord, that if we are true to your word and we witness about Jesus, there might be a price to pay. There's a kingdom coming that gives us hope. In the meantime, 
Help us, Lord, to have patient endurance in Jesus. Lord, work in our midst and give us ears to hear what you have to say to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.